Podcast, the official podcast of Plymouth Argyle Football Club with Charlie Price. Hello, yes, this is the Argyle Podcast. I am Charlie Price. Thanks a lot for joining me. Hope you're all well. Now, before we get into this episode, I want you to be honest with me. How many times have you watched that Adam Randall goal back? Okay. I reckon I'm on about 4,952, but who's counting? And if you can't relish in those sort of glories, then then when can you? Anyway, um, joining us on the podcast this week is someone I'm sure who would have loved to have been commentating on that moment. He's an Argyle fan, uh, kind of intriguingly, uh, grew up in the Midlands, but supported Argyle found his way into sports broadcasting in London, travelled up to Yorkshire, had a stint in Somerset, uh, and is now in Salford but covers Argyle for BBC Radio Devon. It is a voice that many of you will be familiar with. It is, of course, Drew Savage, an Argyle fan through and through, learnt off the best in Gordon Sparks, and is now bringing Argyle matches to all of you via BBC Radio Devon. Here he is. Plymouth Argyle have taken the lead at Stamford Bridge. Can you believe this? You're listening to the Argyle Podcast, the official podcast of Plymouth Argyle Football Club. Drew Savage, a familiar voice to many Argyle supporters, uh, mostly either kind of unable to get to games and having to tune in. In fact, almost exclusively that, isn't it? Um, to to yeah. Radio Devon. <laughs> um, welcome to the Argyle Podcast. Thanks a lot for joining us. How are you, sir? Uh, very well. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm, you know, very pleased to be here, to be honest, uh, where, yeah. so, where, so, where so many of my heroes have been before me. Well, uh, and you could be added to that list for someone else, Drew. You could well be a hero for someone else. Um, I, in a couple of... I remember the, <laughs> the day Argold gloriously finished second, having drawn at Grimsby. I was on my way out the ground and I had my kind of my suitcase with my broadcast stuff with me. And then there was a you know an Argyle an Argyle dad and three young kids and said, "Are you anybody famous?" And I sort of thought, "No, I'm not. I'm I'm just a guy that described <laughs> that on the radio just now." Are you anybody? You don't know want my autograph or anything like that. <laughs> Tell you what, if you had a slightly different personality, Drew, and weren't so humble, you could have gone, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Get in for a selfie. There you go. Um, speaking of pictures as well, uh, I'll let the listeners into a bit of a secret, but you you sent me a picture that you took eight years ago today, did you say? Eight years ago, this very day, yes. Which is of um, the one and only Gordon Sparks. Um, and obviously, me and you talking on a podcast, both being commentators for and previously for BBC Radio Devon, um, it would be remiss of us not to mention the great man, wouldn't it? I mean, I suspect he is going to crop up quite a lot um, in, in the course of the the next hour, however long it is. Um, but yeah, I think I suspect this uh, eight years ago today, Argyle were in the FA Cup away at Sheffield United. And as I sort of quite often did, I sort of found my way into the press box, despite officially not having a job to do. Um, (laughs) I sat next to Sparksy and Chris as they commentated and just with my eyes and ears open and just enjoyed it. Um, You know, happy days. 
How on earth did you manage to weasel your way into the press box at Bramall Lane? Well, you know, I, I, I can't reveal all my trade secrets on here, Charlie. But um, I think usually, I, I, even if I had sort of found my way in, he'd usually quite often ask, him, ask me to kind of go and do a post-match interview or something like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can I can definitely imagine that happening. Seems as though you're here, Drew, you may as well go down and speak to the manager. And I'm like, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. You know, yeah. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. This is the Argyle Podcast. As I mentioned, a lot of people will, will know your know your voice and you are someone famous to a lot of people or at least known um so i'll give you that for sure uh but i i suppose I, I, other than hearing you commentate on games and and seeing you with your now your broken argyle mug on twitter um <laughs> there are a lot of people that probably don't know too much about you um apart from those two things and you're an argyle fan so so this is your opportunity what Let's start with why you are an Argyle fan, because I, I don't think it's a massive disclaimer to say that you're not from Plymouth. I'm um, no, and I have I have no family connection to Plymouth. I've never lived in Plymouth. The nearest I lived was was Taunton, and really, it's a series of chance coincidences, and it's domino after domino after domino that just knocked into each other, and after about the tenth domino, here I am. Um, <laughs> it all started. Football basically completely missed the generation in my family. My 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 mum's dad was a big Arsenal fan. Um, he used to listen to the you know, radio every Saturday afternoon. Um, but my parents weren't at all interested in sport. Nobody got me into football until um, I met my mate Dan at primary school. And he was a, a Liverpool follower. And this is 1980, 81. And, you know, that era, sort of most people uh, mm. were Liverpool fans. So, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Staffordshire. And what happened, the first thing that happened was in the old um, Panini football sticker albums, Football 81, I got the sticker of the Plymouth Argyle team. And I had been to Devon and Cornwall with my family on holiday and really liked it down there. I really liked Plymouth. You know, we went on the, the dockyard tour, on the, on the boats, all that sort of thing. Went on the hoe, really loved all that. Um, didn't know until that point that Plymouth, Plymouth had a team or were called Argyle. Mm. And this is 1991. No one else plays in green. No one in the English leagues. No one even had a green away kit. Um, no one else had called Argyle. And I've been to Plymouth. I'd liked it. I thought, well, it's quite a big place. Plymouth are probably quite good. So I looked up in the back of the book where the previous year's league tables were. So you know, Division 1, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Division 2, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Division 3, oh, here we are, um, seventh. Well, they're probably quite good then, I thought. Mm -hmm. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then... All there is, yeah, it's 1991. There's no, you know, there's no smartphone. There's no internet. There's very little live football on TV whatsoever, apart from the cup final. All there is really to it, you look out on final score, you listen to the results on the radio, and you're a bit pleased when your team wins. So, you know, I've not really made much of a connection with Liverpool on that basis. So just the next week, but right, I'll be a Plymouth fan for a bit, see how that goes. And it's October 1981. I did look this up earlier on. Um, and I think it's actually a game that's regarded as one of the all-time low points of the club. I think the, the crowd was probably less than 3,000. But it, Argyle beat Chester 5-1. And right, had that okay. not happened on that particular weekend, I might not be here now. Um, if I hadn't got the Panini, Panini sticker, if we hadn't beaten Chester 5-1, the next little domino that fell over was the FA Cup run of 83-84. 
so suddenly, and I've been, you know, I've been telling people I'm a Plymouth Argyle fan, still never even seen the team, but suddenly Tommy Tynan's on TV, John Hall's on TV, it's on Football Focus, there's shots of the Pannier Market, there's Umbrella Vi, you know, all this stuff. And you know, my team's been talked about on TV, this is a team worth following. Mm. And that was the next domino. Well, then, thank goodness for Jeff Cook, Colin Randall and John Sims then who uh, were the scorers in that game. Saturday, <laughs> you 24th, like that while I was here. No, Drew, I just recall. No, of Obviously. course I've looked it up. Green's on screen, um, which is the, the best resource, especially for commentators, there is Always. out there for Argyle, um, has told me that. Um, so, yeah, that is, a, that is a very sort of long way around choosing a side. Um, and there was, whilst you were telling that story, a, a big sigh in the middle of all of that. So <laughs> are you happy with your choice? I'm incredibly happy with my choice. Uh, it's, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be doing what I do for a living now for the BBC. Um, had I not had that passion for Argyle, because that's what carried me into working in sport and sports news. Um, my life could have been completely different. The first game I was actually taken to was mm -hmm. Stoke v Brighton in the old first division. So, yeah, you know, we're living in Staffordshire. I was born in Stoke, grew up nearby. They're the local team. My dad, despite never really following them, is from Brighton. And I suspect someone somewhere had the idea I might become a follower of either side. But it was a nil-nil draw. If, again, if either team had been any good. <laughs> it, it might have changed the course of history, yeah. Um, so growing up then, just outside of Stoke, growing up in Staffordshire, being, being a Plymouth Argyle fan, you, you would have been the only one, I'm almost certain, of that fact. So... As you sort of meandered your way through childhood and and got more interested in football and stuff, and how how was being a Plymouth fan or an Argyle fan? Um, I guess I mean the next little domino was the winning promotion to the old second division, and again yeah, that thing you know, that that's something that at the right age convinced me or helped to kind of further convince me that this was kind of worth carrying on with. Um, first game. Um, friend of mine was a Stoke fan and him and his dad took me to Stoke the Argyle. I remember being very impressed with Gordon Nisbet, a right back. I was a right back, not a very mm -hmm. good one. Um, and then the real clincher, uh, 1989. And I think it's, it's so many people's first game or first, first impressionable game, let's say, when we drew Everton in the cup. And it just so happened that the same mate who took me to that Stoke game he had a sister who was much older. I've never, never even met her. She was a WPC in Plymouth. So when Argyle drew Everton in the FA Cup, she managed to get us four tickets. So we go, we'll go, we'll pile down the train, me, my dad, my brother, and this kid, Neil, and playing Everton, who, you know, they went on to get to the final that year. They'd won cups, they'd won leagues. And also, where I come from, Eccleshaw, the population is just over 5,000. 27,500 in Home Park that day. I'd never seen anything like it. Just mm. the noise, the the buzz of it, the way we were absolutely crammed in like penguins into the Devonport end to see Alan Miller leaping at full stretch, making a turning a save over the bar. And you know, that, I was like, wow, this is me. You know, And Argyle, for most of that game, were as good as first division, former league champions, Everton. And um, yeah. never a handball, by the way. Right. Well, well, yeah, I, I don't know whether you've <laughs> listened to both Sean McCarthy's uh, and Nicky Marker's uh, um, podcast, because both of them mentioned this game in particular, both played, obviously, 
Maka scored. Um, and uh, both really criticised Adrian Burrows, um, who, went, who <laughs> was the unfortunate one. But you are right, yes. I mean, look at back, look at back. It's on Greens on screen. It's on YouTube. It was never a penalty. You didn't go to the, um, you didn't go to the the replay, did you? No, couldn't, couldn't get tickets. And um, and you know, Kevin Summerfield was probably my my hero in that side. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, didn't go well for him, and is in many ways that's, that was effectively the end of his Argyle career, which is such a shame. But obviously, he came back to the club in uh, later years on the coaching staff, and that went pretty well for him. It did indeed. So you're, yeah, I mean, just looking from eighty one through till eighty nine. There, I mean, that that is a it's a fairly good, well, it's a very good period for Argyle, isn't it? With um, the promotion you mentioned in eighty six, that that FA Cup tie, there was a, that was a really good team as well in that kind of back end of the eighties. Um, so my question earlier about how was life as an Argyle fan growing up? It must have been, it must have been pretty good actually when you were able to kind of. I mean, I guess there's always a lot of kind of ripping through your mates at school because, you know, a lot of them are Man United, Liverpool fans, even the sort of Stoke and Wolves fans that will look down their noses at you a bit, even though for a lot of the time we were playing them on a fairly equal footing. But I guess, you know, Plymouth, you know, in the Midlands, you know, you, you keep, constantly have to remind people that we're called Argyle. It's not mm. really a fashionable club, but you just sort of stick with it. You know, I think the loyalty is almost kind of bred into you as a follower of football of any kind. Um, and I guess in some ways, um, I was almost like the Asian's equivalent of old uh, Tatsuki in Japan. You know, it's like <laughs> the, the, the club randomly sort of found me in some way and I just followed them however I could from afar. And, you know, I, I had a paper, you know, three years I had a paper around, which actually I think is one of the, where I got a lot of my sports knowledge. I just read all the sports pages as I delivered the papers. And I'd be always looking out for any match reports with Argyle in. And that was how I kind of kept my interest going. But if it hadn't been for that FA Cup tie, going to Home Park, that being such an occasion. After that, I basically tried to get to at least one, you know, get to as many home games as I could. But I'd always do at least one a season um, after that. Yeah. OK. I, well, yeah, I was going to mention that. How often did you get to see the team? So... I, rarely when they were away from home, even when they were up in in sort of the Midlands. It was area. mainly it was mainly away. So away games at you know Wolves, Port Vale, Stoke, uh, Wrexham. I remember the. I mean, there was a five-one defeat at Port Vale in the absolute pouring rain early December. It was we scored first. Kwame Ampadu who was on loan to us. Got the early goal up the far end, and yeah, and then I think Mickey Evans made his debut in that game, possibly, or was it maybe another one at Vale, but. Oh, it was a really horrible afternoon, horribly wet, horribly cold. My brother picked me up at the end of it, and he goes, "What did you do that for?" I don't know. <laughs> I'm going again. <laughs> no, well, and that's when I've never that's... ever seen Argyle win at Port Vale until yeah, the best day of our lives. And yeah. life comes full circle at you sometimes. It, it absolutely does. Um, what you've just mentioned there is true fanship, isn't it? So, and I suppose it doesn't matter at all where you come from and that's exactly what you you kind of said earlier on once it's your club it's your club and you find whatever way you can to follow them and um yeah you've just suddenly become part of the argyle family exactly and you know there's always been a great atmosphere away games even in the kind of mm. you know late 80s early 90s we're probably only taking maybe 200 300 compared to the sort of thousand plus two thousand plus that we take these days but there was always this sort of camaraderie and almost you know even if we weren't playing well there was gallows humor about it all um as we kind of got through that little period and then 
Then there was a relegation under Peter Shilton. But then what followed that season, I was the perfect age for it. That My mate who was in football was a Man United fan, but he just passed his driving test. Later on that season, I passed my driving test. And the, the Peter Shilton nearly season, that, is it 93, 94? Yeah. I must have got to something like 15 games that season. What a time to be an Argyle fan. I mean, I, I think I, you know, it's only these last couple of years that have really matched that as a period for the, the football played and the experiences and the goals scored, everything, the whole bit. The Argyle Podcast with Charlie Price. You, you mentioned that if it, if it wasn't really for, for, for Argyle necessarily, you might not have got into what you do now. So obviously people will know that you work um, for the BBC and you commentate... Um, on occasions for Argyle, normally when it's up in the north, but but you also are a full time employee of the BBC. You're talking to me now from a thought pod. Um, <laughs> as they're known, so when as they're known, yeah, exactly. When was the when was you know your career starting to to take shape then as well? When, when did you, I mean w- w- did you always think you might wanted to do or want to do football commentary or work in sport or work in the media? No, I mean, um, you know, if you'd approached that 14-year-old me on the way, however old it was, on the away terrace of Port Vale and told me that one day I'd commentate on Plymouth Argyle winning the league at that ground, I would never, ever have believed you. You know, I I just went to, I went to a bog standard, you know, comprehensive school in Stafford. People like me aren't supposed to end up working for the BBC. Um, And in some ways you could say the whole thing's actually happened by accident. Um, There's a bit more to it than that. Um, I remember at university, I am. I had been sort of joint sports editor of the college newspaper, and I, the, we were just getting a college student radio station going at the time. And I hosted the first, co-hosted the first ever sports show we had on that. I never thought that'd be a career. I just did those things because they were fun, because I wanted to do mm-hmm. them. And uh, I believe you're supposed to do things this way. But in the Easter of my final year at university, I finally got around to go and have a careers interview. And I said, uh, well, I'd quite like to work in the media, really. And the, the, and the careers advice, she said to me, well, really, if you wanted to do that, you should probably be working on it for about the last two years and getting yourself work experience and, and, and sending letters to emails to people. But you strike me as being the kind of bloke that things happen to. So go for it. All <laughs> that's right. the best advice I've ever had. Wow. Um, and yet many years later, here we are. I mean, my first job after university, I, I just took a temp job because he needed, you know, he needed money. And I had a, um, I was working in the dental school at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London, um, doing timetables for trainee dentists. Um, but at the same time as that, after a few months of it, um, a friend I made at university, who is, well, he's now the World Services Athletics commentator, um, he happened to say to me, well, we've got someone whose Saturday job is to come into the studio on a Saturday, write down the football scores for a horse for the World Service, um, and they're leaving. Do you fancy doing it? I just went, yeah. And that, in many ways, Argyle notwithstanding, is still the best job I've ever had. This is 2001. Um, and mm. again, you know, smartphones are a thing of the future. You may have had a mobile. You might have got the odd text update. But, you know, no live streams of anything anywhere. There's sort of match of the day and there's live radio and and bit of Sky Sports, but that's it. And I got to go into TV centre mm. and sit in a radio studio and you had six monitors above you. I had the Sky video printer on one and the BBC video printer on the other, a World Service in one ear and five live in the other. And I could pick any four feeds, live feeds from the, the Premiership Premier League matches 
Um, and it's just my job to just keep on top of all the football scores and keep handing them across to the presenter and, and letting them know what was going on. Um, yeah, that, that was just such an amazing thing to do. And I just did, did that most Saturdays for a long time. And then eventually I kept sort of plugging away at the BBC, BBC Sport and eventually managed to go and get in as what's called a broadcast assistant, kind of right on the, the very ground floor of it. Um, and off mm. I went. I mean, that was... Um, and of the many famous people that I've met along the way, that was one of the best because uh, James Alexander Gordon, who you know read the football scores on Radio Two and Radio Five for so many, many, many years, usually they'd just like record it from Five Live and play it out on World Service. But every now and then, if there was like a late result and they couldn't do that, he would come into our studio and he would read the football scores live. And for someone like me, who you know I'd listen to him with my grandpa. You know, as I'm sure many people have done with their mums and dads over the years, and I got to watch him do it, and that was just you know, it's like I I, I would have paid them. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those but, surreal. Know, and he'd say hello to me. We sort of yeah, we were, we were on real nodding terms. You know, I just really yeah. remember his old uh, Ford Sierra saloon being parked at the side of TV Centre. I just knew, oh yeah, he's here. He's here. Everything in the world, everything in the world is as it should be. James Alexander Gordon's here to do the football scores. Oh, it's one of the for me one of the best memories that I've ever that I would ever have would be watching Argyle at home park. It'd be absolutely freezing cold, similar kind of temperatures to what we have at the moment. Probably raining. Whatever the score, you get back in the car, you'd be stuck in traffic trying to drive back to where we used to live, which was outside of the city, and James Alexander Gordon would be on the radio. So you'd probably be sat somewhere near him uh, if he was doing it, uh, if it was on the World Service, for example. But you'd play the game, obviously. Yes. Which is, you didn't know said, the scores. He said, he said, Plymouth Argyle, you knew it wouldn't be good news. Or he said, no. Plymouth Argyle. Yeah. <laughs> you could almost pick the result. This is all yeah. that intonation. And then, <laughs> about three years after that, my very first little gig was doing the non-league non show on BBC Radio Leeds, and I had to read out the, the results for the Northern Counties East League Premier Division. And, you know, teams like Pontefract Collieries and uh, Maltby Maine and Rosendale United. And I, and I was trying to just give it my best James Alexander Gordon. I'd sort of, you know, there I was at the very bottom of my profession, but I'd seen the guy who was at the top and I knew how he did it. So, so you've mentioned, Drew, there quite a few jobs, but also quite a few locations. So um, London being one of them writing scores down for the world service and you've also just mentioned leads as well um so plot us through your early career then and where where you went and what you did um so because you kind of have to move you have to move around don't you really you have to just yeah i mean I, in that era you had to move to london pretty much you either got i mean and in many ways i wish i'd just someone had let me know that i could just knock on the door of radio stoke and they would have got me doing stuff straight from school if i'd mm. known um but you know it was only once i sort of moved to you know got into the sort of media orbit of london and i was around there that i realized it was something i could do um so eventually i got a job as broadcast assistant for tv sports news which were in those days was called bbc news 24 now the, now the bbc news channel it's kind of evolved over the years that's been where i spent my bulk of my career but the kind of first kind of early lucky break i had there was a little sort of, it's called an attachment scheme. You go and work for a different mm -hmm. bit of the BBC for a bit and you'd sort of learn what you can and it's to help you develop your career. And I wanted to be at that point a local TV sport reporter, you know, like what uh, Andy Burkett does on Spotlight. Um, and in the course of my job, I'd sort of made a few links with the people at BBC Look North in Leeds. I went up there for four months 
and this was the tail end of 2003, start of 2004. And obviously that particular bit of things never quite worked out, but it was a shared office between the TV and radio people in Leeds. And the first thing, pretty much the first week I was there, they sent me off down to cover, or not to cover, but to go with a guy called Adam Pope, who's mm -hmm. been, he's now BBC Radio Leeds, Leeds United reporter. But in those days, he was a freelancer. And I went with him to do Huddersfield away at Yeovil. Um, and you know, an incredibly long drive and, you know, got chatting to him along the way and, you know, learned so much actually just in that car, one car journey and got to Yahooish Park. And I just thought, yeah, this is for me. I'd, I'd love to do this. Um, and so I started working towards that. The other, other thing that happened while I was in Leeds, well, two things happened. Firstly, they didn't realise that as a broadcast assistant in London, I'd not really ever done any interviewing. And they sent me up to Leeds United press conference to interview Peter Reid. <laughs> of course, in later years, I was to meet again as our manager. But, you know, I'm in my mid-20s. I've never done this sort of thing before. And it was supposed to be like an arrangement between Sky and ITV and BBC. You could all use each other's answers. So I didn't think, well, I didn't think I had to say much. But we got there a little bit late. And my cameraman hadn't told me that he'd not got a very good angle. And they could only use my answers. I only found this out afterwards. And I went on third. And all the good questions have been answered. So I basically asked him a couple of questions about David Batty. And that was it. <laughs> And I sort of took that back to base and they watched the tape back and they're like, well, Drew, we can't really use this. You've not, you've not really covered yourself in glory there. Um, and I was like, ah, oh, no, this is not. After that, though, they kind of realised what level I was at and they got got me started on local non-league. And um, I don't know if you remember a winger I used to have called Mark Stewart, but he was playing for mm -hmm. Geisley. And I ended up, you know, I covered Geisley and I interviewed Mark Stewart. Uh, Simon Collins, our old centre-back, was playing for Bradford Park Avenue. Um, and in fact, my little rep, my little leaving present from Leeds, they went to Park Avenue and they got me Simon Collins' actual Bradford Park Avenue shirt. And wow. I don't know if you remember Simon Collins, but he's a big fella. And I'm five foot eight. This shirt, well, occasionally I will use it as a tent. <laughs> <laughs> but towards oh. the end of my time there, firstly, I took over the non-league show from um, a broadcaster called Jackie Oatley, who is far more famous. Oh, wow and well-known than me, and she was a great person to learn from. Um, and then my really sort of big break, or the thing that gave me the power to push on, Leeds played Arsenal in the FA Cup, fourth round. And in those days, there was no uh, match of the day two, not yet. So it was a Sunday game. So the local BBC station would go and do the, the interviews. And I was just to be, be there to produce it. That was my job, just make sure it all happened. Uh, and a guy called Luke Wildman, who was commentating for Radio Leeds, would do the interviews. And it's... Um, it was the year Leeds absolutely imploded and got relegated. They were in all sorts of trouble. Believe it, they took the lead against all odds, like a deflection off Mark Viduka's part of his body of some sort. Went on to lose 4-1. It was 2-1 with about 10 minutes to go. And I'm up, up in the gantry with Chris, the cameraman. We start to make our way down to the, the where the tunnel is. Uh, and Wenger, Arsene Wenger brings on three subs, I think two of whom score. Go on to win 4-1. So we're there in the tunnel, waiting for Luke to come down and do the interviews. And then Arsene Wenger appears. So I sort of look around and Chris just literally handed me the microphone and gave me a shove in the back. And like You're Hell. doing it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so Arsene, um, you put out a strong squad today. Was that out of respect for Leeds or respect for the competition? Yeah, yeah. And then it's, I think, I'm away, I'm going. And then the second question, I say, so with 10 minutes to go, you brought on uh, Ray Parler, Robert Perez and... And there's this pause. And after, and I want the earth to swallow me up. 
and I look round behind me and no, you know, no help from Chris whatsoever. And after what felt like several hours, but I've listened back to the tape for <laughs> half a second, Arsene Wenger just gave me a big smile and he said, I'm Colo. Colo Torre, great options, Arsene. And I was back in the room. And yeah. I almost feel everything I've done since then stood or fell on that, that little moment. And if Arsene Wenger had not been kind to me, a nervous young guy trying to make his way in the world of the media, I might have gone home with my tail between my legs and never tried anything again. So, um, mm. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, we go back to Ellen Road with Argyle this season yeah. uh, and actually commentate sitting next to Adam Pope of Radio Leeds. Mm. That was just such a, an amazing way of bringing the whole thing full circle. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've, I mean, you've 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 mentioned something there, which uh, and actually you you told me that story up in Leeds. So I'm glad you brought it up again now. But it's something that is one of the most and it's one of the most terrifying things, to be honest. I think um, when you are doing a doing an interview with a football manager, and it could be from whatever level, and for whatever reason, your mind goes blank halfway through a question. And it you're absolutely right. It just is, it, you, you know, it feels like forever. You've got the manager's eyes just staring at you because they, you know, they, they maybe don't want to be doing this interview right now as well. But, yeah. you know, they, they, they're waiting for you to do your thing and then they'll come out with a response. And and it so much gets made of, of interviews, post-match interviews especially. And they are just, normally, they're just a kind of cut and shut type of thing three or four pre, you know, questions that come out every single time, but every now and again, and I've had many a moment and every reporter will have a story of a horrific, horrific post-match interview situation. Probably more than one, actually. Um, so for you to have it with Arsene Wenger, well, firstly, horrific and brilliant is uh, is a pretty good claim, to be honest. It's yeah. actually in quite good stead that if you've done it with exactly. Wenger. Oh, after that point, I just thought, well, I've just interviewed Arsene Wenger for the telly. Yeah. I could do anything now. Yeah. Not that well, but I could do it. Um, and that that was the thing, and that gave me a bit of confidence. So then I um, went back to London when that was all over. I started go, doing games for BBC London, which is a great station to work for because I mean, most radio stations have got sort of, you know, three, four, five teams tops to cover. I mean, mm. actually, you know, Radio Dev and having... Argyle, Exeter, Torquay, and Exeter Chiefs. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good patch because you can cover every club. But BBC London, I mean, they had you know these have usually got six, seven, eight Premier League teams, two or three of the Championship. They've got Orient. They've got you know. And I, I cut my teeth um, reporting on Barnet the year they won the conference. But I got on top of that. I got to go round and you know I did Fulham games and I got to interview people like Chris Coleman and Roy Hodgson. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Yole, who just lost 4-0 at, at, uh, at Liverpool with Fulham. And I was expecting him to be, uh, you know, you've often got your tin hat on when the team's just lost and lost badly. But it was like, he was surprisingly jovial and jocular. I was like, I got away with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's just, just sprung to mind now. Gianfranco Zola and he was managing Watford. Um, mm. I did a game away at Barnsley. Basically, they had just messed up their chance of automatic promotion. And again, I was thinking, oh, this isn't going to be easy. And Joan Francozola was as nice as you could possibly imagine. And I thought, you know what? You are possibly too nice a man to make it at the top level of football management. And um, I think I was right about that one. <laughs> Gianfranco, if you're listening. Struth <laughs> Savage, if you remember. Um, so when was your first... When did you first cover, working-wise, an Argyle game then, Drew? 
I was thinking about this earlier on, and I think it's away at Watford, but I can't actually be sure. I wish I'd kept more records. I've mm. kept pretty much every team sheet and programme I've ever done from a game I've covered. And one day I'll look at them all in the attic or, or whatever and, and look back on it maybe. But I've never kept a kind of full list. I kind of I know where I've been and what grounds I've been to. I've been to the I've been to all ninety two as a fan or as a as a follower. It's probably about fifty or sixty as a commentator. But mm. um it's a good question. Yeah. Really good question. I, I mean, I'm, I, so you think it's Watford. So that would have been in the championship then. Back yes, in, what I do remember. Is, and um, you probably had this when you, you've reported on teams who aren't Argyle. And when you're commentating, particularly for local radio reporting, as that was, for Radio London, I, that's how I got started. You do what's called off-air comms. You just go there yeah. and you commentate and they would record it. They take live reports from you. But if your commentary was any good, they play it out as part of their highlights. So that was how, how I sort of learned to commentate. Um, and yeah, I was, I was doing a game at Watford and they I think they led for most of the game. And I remember up the far end of the pitch, Nick Chadwick got a late equaliser for Argyle. Uh, and I remember feeling really odd about this afterwards because I was covering the game from a Watford point of view. And I was actually disappointed when Nick oh. Chadwick scored for Argyle. And I felt really weird about that. But I was doing my job. I was doing the best job I could for the Watford fans, which is why I was there. Mm -hmm. um, so there were, there were a couple of those. And it was round about that time. I, you know, I was, I was back in London. And there was um, another um, producer at World Service Sport who was from Devon. And he knew Gordon Sparks a little bit. And another of the reasons I started doing football coverage was I couldn't afford to go anymore. Mm. I, I, when I, in that little period in Leeds where I could just ring up the club and say, hello, I'm from BBC Look North or I'm from Leeds. And, you know, can I kind of just come and come and do a report? I realised I could I could get in for free or, or better still actually get paid for it. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sure there are far, they're far, far worse jobs in the world. But a broadcast assistant at the BBC does not earn a great deal of money. Um, mm. And actually learning to do report reporting and commentating was one of the ways I could actually afford to go. So around about this time, I sort of made contact with Gordon Sparks. And if Argyle were playing in the, in the London area, um, sometimes he just let me come along for the ride. Um, I think I, I initially met him by chance on a, on a tube trainer after a game at Dagenham and Redbridge. And after that, we just kind of clicked a little bit. So quite often, I just try and get myself a press pass and he'd, he'd let me sit next to him and Chris Errington as it, as it usually was. Um, and that was sort of how, again, is one of the, one of the people that I would just just learn from. Yeah, I remember there was a away well, game at, at, at uh, West Ham United where Teddy Sheringham ran a muck and we let in five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he let me go and interview. <laughs> he let me as a favour let me go and interview Bobby Williamson after that one. Um, no, that was a fun one. It was. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I was sitting next to Steve Castle. Um, in the you know, uh, uh, as he and Sparksy were commentating again, it's just, and it's just it's just a fan in you, just like wow, I'm I'm here, I'm allowed to be here, I'm allowed to do this. Mm. Um, what 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 was you know what was because I I know from my experience what the answer to this is, but what was Sparksy like with you then when you were just in and around him and and sitting next to him and chatting to him? What 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 did he what did he do for you? He was, he was absolutely straight with me. And he couldn't have been friendlier. I mean, there are, sometimes you, you, you'll you hear about people in, in local media 
um, you know, up and down the country who have a little bit of an empire and they don't like people coming in and trying to muscle in on, on their patch, if you like. Mm-hmm. And Gordon Sparks was the absolute opposite of that. He couldn't have been more welcoming. And he never sort of said, oh, Drew, you want to commentate? You, 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 watch, you watch what we do and you'll, you'll, you'll learn from it. He, he never, you know, he, he had no ego in that regard. But I just sit and see what he did and how he did it. Uh, I mean, the one thing ever said to me was, Drew, well, it's local radio. So and I, and I, I will, you know, the one thing I will never have, I'll never have Gordon Sparks' voice. He had that amazing stentorian Plymouthian accent. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, we're partisan, but we're not biased. Yeah, if famous quote of his. We, yeah. we see it from a certain point of view. We commentate from the point of view of the people who are listening to our commentary. But if Argyle are not very good, I'll say we are not very good. Those weren't his exact words, but um, well, actually, uh, having listened to Maxine Blanchard last week, the swearing is one of the things I enjoyed the most. But I'm not going to go there. You get away with it, Drew. Yeah, yeah. Maxie's set the precedent now. Uh, yeah. Um, and just the, the sheer passion of Sparksy and to just, just be able to, mm. it's like to watch, watching James Alexander Gordon reading the football scores, to watch Sparksy commentate in Argyle and. You could just tell it was just his, you know, were the best things he could ever possibly be doing. He loved doing it so much and he had that passion. And whatever else I've tried to do when I've commentated and actually after he passed, I said, well, you know, all, all we can do, those of us who are left behind, is try and do it the way he did it. You'll never, you'll never replicate doing it the way he did it, but you just bring a tenth of that, that passion and that yeah. skill because he was a wordsmith as well. He was, you know, so uh, so many occasions he's sort of come, come with something completely out of left field um, in the way he described it. Um, but yeah, it was just inspiring to watch him and to learn from Chris Arrington as well. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and that gave it that and working for Radio London gave him my grounding. Um, and then around about 2006, I got a chance. Um, BBC Somerset was supposed to be expanding around about that time. And I, I up sticks from London for a sport job that never actually quite came into being. Um, but while I was there, I started doing regular Yeovil commentaries uh, for BBC Somerset. And, and that was how I moved from just doing bits and pieces and off air stuff and reporting. And that's how I got into actually doing a, a full, full 90 minutes. Um, right. And the Yeovil was a great club to cover, to be fair. That it was, a, it was an ideal size of club because you know, you're a press officer now yourself. And I think there's a, somewhere there's a tipping point in football where the role of the press officer stops being to help the press and to help the club get publicity as much as possible. And it becomes kind of putting people off and making people go away and limiting access because there's an awful lot of requests coming in. People are busy. Well, Yeovil couldn't have been more welcoming, more accommodating, a great size of club. Uh, Russell Slade was the manager at the time. And I'd actually met him. My other little break up in BBC Leeds was Scarborough had a great FA Cup run when they ended up playing Chelsea. I did, I'd met and interviewed Russell during that time. So actually he and I find ourselves at Yeovil at the same time. Mm. It's quite funny in football how things kind of come around and go around. Um, and then some of the players on that team have gone on to have really good careers in management. So Paul Warren, now, uh, now well, Rotherham, now, now Derby, he summarised for me while he was injured and he's one of the best pundits I'd ever worked with. And mm. likewise, Nathan Jones, who um, got on to great success managing Luton Town. Um so that was a great place to cut my teeth. And the only sad thing about it was I was living in Taunton at the time, closer to Plymouth than I'd ever lived. And yet I missed most of the Ian Holloway era. 
apart from the odd game here and there because i was an hour and a half up the road or or wherever Working. yoga were in the, in the country following following them around yeah. there was a pre-season friendly when argyle played yeovil and that was one of the strangest things i've ever ever done because i knew i knew though that yeovil side it was after the first season i'd done i knew all the yeovil players really well i've interviewed them week in week out i knew lots about mm-hmm. their characters i mean what they what, what they were into what they weren't into and i knew the manager really well and obviously i knew the argyle team but it was really quite strange to see my team play my other team and i was commentating <laughs> on it and i was basically hoping nobody scored I, I, was gonna, I didn't know how I would feel if, if one of my teams scored against, you know, and it was always, it was always Argyle above everything else, but Yeovil were my week in, week out. That, that was the core of my job at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, l- luckily I was never there when, when Argyle played them uh, while I was still covering Yeovil. Later on, I did do a Yeovil-Argyle game and Paul Wharton was playing for Yeovil at that point. Um, mm-hmm. And I commentated on that, but by then, by, so my association, were still got a, a soft spot for Yeovil. But you know, once they're no longer the team you cover week in week out, you retain a sort of a feeling for them. But it, it does ever weigh a little bit. Uh, so yeah, when Argyle went there and played Yeovil in the league, there was no contest. This is the Argyle podcast. You you've kind of um, brought me on to a topic which I get asked quite a lot, uh, and used to get asked quite a lot as well when I worked at the BBC. Uh, for Radio Devon and would do extra city games sometimes. So how do you find commentating on Argo? It's... As a fan, obviously. It's a very mixed thing. Um, On days when Argo play well and get the result we're hoping for, it's the best job in the world. And in days where it doesn't go well, you possibly even there's two things one you can simply be wrapped up with the challenge of constantly describing what's happening on the pitch and that's your job above above anything else and sometimes you you don't necessarily you know, you, you you stay in the moment and you're not thinking about what's happening to our guard but you're always under hoping we score but equally sometimes you could just take it really personally and you can it really weighs on you that the the season that argyle were in administration we started that season with uh, away at Shrewsbury, and you know I've heard you chat about this with Rob McNichol and, and other people, and, and Carl Fletcher as well. And Carl, you know, we we didn't even know we were going to make it through that season, mm-hmm. and and I'm commentating on it. And I think we you know we had something like seven, eight players never even played football league football before making their debuts, and then Fletch pops up on the edge of the penalty area right in injury time and hits that shot, and we get an equaliser. And I just channeled that to have that whole feeling channeling through your body <laughs> and out of your mouth and into a microphone and broadcast that to thousands of people. That is the best feeling in the world. And yet that same season, and when we started that season, that was the only point we got for the first 10 games. Every other mm. game was a defeat. Um, and I did for some reason, because Sparksy was commentating regularly, but I, I ended up doing three or four of those, I think. There was um, a way at Barnet where I got to work with Dwight Marshall the only time. And again, that was the wonderful things have happened to me through doing this. You get to meet and work with so many of your heroes sometimes. And Dwight was brilliant. I mean, he stepped in at short notice and he was really constructive. He he understood. He totally got how this was a young side and they were going to make mistakes. And he, he, he he was very constructive 
in the way you put all these points. And then the, the next game I did after that was a, there was a defeat at Gillian where somebody got sent off. We lost two or three nil. And every week it was like watching someone you watching somebody you love being beaten up. <laughs> and every you know, and every week it was the same. And we we play all right for about an hour, and then someone would make a mistake, and someone would, or someone would get sent off, and we concede a free kick, we let a goal, and then we'd lose by two or three, and it was just the same thing again and again and again. And the final one is away at South End, and again before that game. I got to meet Gary Nelson, another of my heroes, and interview him before the match. So there's still little silver linings in this cloud, but that turned out to be Peter Reed's last game in charge. You know, Carl Fletcher got sent off in the second half. We lost two or three nil. Mm. Can't remember exactly what. I felt like walking off to, to walking down the pier at South End and jumping off the end of it at the end of all that. I didn't know where it was going to end. So sometimes, yeah, it it, it affects you so badly. Yeah. Um, how's it for you, by the way? <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, quite similar. I think uh, it's 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 amazing when it's going well. Um, and we'll come on to a couple of games in a minute that I want to kind of get your emotions of as well. But yeah, I mean, what, when you're when you're flying, like the Exeter City games from last season, especially the one at Home Park, the four-two, probably one of the best feelings I've ever had and I was commentating on the game probably not one of my best commentaries because I was too emotional maybe um yeah I can empathize um, with that yeah. sometimes the games, right. the games you enjoy most aren't the ones where you do the best job yeah yeah no, and, I, was, and, I was watching that in a pub you see so um <laughs> yeah well they, they were probably more measured on sky but but the other thing that I've sometimes had thrown at me and, it, and you know I absolutely get it sometimes is, is reacting to loudly or as if I'm kind of excited about the opposition scoring. Um, and my answer to that is always, I really want to just shout angrily as you would as a fan, you know, when a team <laughs> concedes against you. Yes, so it's almost like, your way oh, of Oh, for goodness out, but... sake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I kind of well, have I guess to get also, that there's out. There's also the technical, technical elements to it, which are firstly, well, you, you know, if you're there at the ground, the fans are going to make a noise when their team yeah, scores, yeah, the opposing yeah, fans. Yeah. And you've got, to, you've got to raise your voice to be heard over that, for starters. And the other thing is, is that I think you broadcast to a lot of, um, more so perhaps on radio than, than, than when on a specific um, Argyle TV commentary. But when you're on Radio Devon, you've got to bear in mind, not everyone is an Argyle fan and not everyone is listening intently to what you're doing. People could be doing the gardening, they could be no tidying the house, whatever and not necessarily paying attention. And when something important is going on, you've got to convey that to them in your tone of voice. You, yeah. You've got to give them a little, it's not non-verbal because you're making it, but you know, it's in the way you say it, you've got to give them a signal that something exciting is happening on the pitch. It might not be exciting in our guard's favor, but it's something that you at home, if you're, if you're just you know uh, doing the drying up at this point, just need to prick up your ears and pay attention to it, but it's important to the outcome of this game. And and that's why partly you get excited when there's a goal of any kind, even a goal against yeah. Argyle. That's that's my yeah. reading of it. Yeah, totally agree. And 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 you're right. It's I mean it is it is a, an unbelievably great job to be able to do it, and especially when you have massive massive moments. Um, rather than oh, I suppose I will, I'll ask you in a minute about pick out games that you've done whilst you're commentating. I can imagine a few that spring to mind straight away. But you did the. Um, the five-one, and Accrington, didn't you? For radio, uh, yes, yes, that was a so, hard afternoon at the office. You didn't get to do a post-match interview, though. I don't think did you, or at least no. We still, Adams. I stood there like a lemon for quite a long time, waiting for Derek Adams. Um, and uh, 
and yeah eventually uh, would have been rick howder at that point um mm, came out yeah. and said i'm sorry he's, he's he's left the ground he's not gonna not gonna speak yeah um the, I, I and so really... those those days you mentioned a, a couple earlier on but those days they you know that's a you almost knew that we were relegated that day and being a fan but also still having to kind of do your job and knowing you've got to ask questions before you knew that Derek Adams wasn't going to come out of the manager fans were furious it was you know what is how do you kind of compose yourself to to even think about doing that also I think that there and particularly so much more so in these days of social media um you know sometimes you can't I, I try not to look at social media too much, particularly after we lost, but every now and then you'll get the odd comment about what you've done or said or not done or not said. And that kind of weighs on your mind a bit sometimes. And it's almost certainly very few people, unless like my dad's listening, who listens to me a lot and is a fair judge of what I do, I think. After our goal of lost, very few people will, will kind of like drop you a line or post on, post on social media and say, you did a good job with that game. You know, it's never... <laughs> never for a defeat so you always got your tin hat on already plus then you've got to go and interview a manager who could be a tricky customer and is likely to be in a foul mood um you know and over what over the years you develop you know you, you've got a few you've got a few more sort of clubs in your in your golf bag so to speak of ways you can deal with it um and you know sometimes they work sometimes they doesn't sometimes there's little things you can say that will even sort of pacify a manager in a bad mood and you, you, you never know sometimes, is it best to actually annoy him a bit and get him angry because mm -hmm. that's great copy. Yeah, that, that makes for good radio. But equally, you don't want it to descend into a full-on Barney. Um, it's always just to you know, judge, try and judge it in the moment, really. And the thing is, I, I think I'm, I'm lucky in that I'm usually an inherently positive person and I'll try and see it the way the manager sees it. And most managers, I've been lucky that most managers I've worked with over the years, I've been pretty honest about the way they see a game of football. And you know, reporting on other clubs for Radio London, Radio Manchester, other stations I've worked for, sometimes you'll get someone who comes out and will try and tell you black is white. And that's often a hard one to, a hard one to, to deal with because you're, as a reporter, you're at a disadvantage because you've never been a football manager, you've never been a professional football player, and they can come back and go, what do you think? And if you say what you think, they almost they can almost go, well, it doesn't count what you think because you've never been in my position. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, you're trying to avoid being sucked into that end of things. Um, so I always try and keep it positive. Um, and I'll usually give the give the manager a way in which they can be negative without being too negative. And usually you can get out, I think. You can... <laughs> Well, Stephen Schumacher, we're now listening to this and taking notes and go, oh, really? Okay, very right. But yeah, you know, I think the best thing is always to, you know, it's never about you as the reporter. Just let the manager talk. In mm. some ways, the art of an interview is just keep the manager talking for two minutes, three minutes, whatever it is. Um, every now and then, you can just sort of chuck something into the mix that will get something out of them they didn't want to say. But actually, most fans, I think, well, the first thing they want to know after a game is, well, what does the manager think about all that? Yeah. And that's our job. Yeah. yeah. Right then. That was a horrific day, obviously. Tell me <laughs> some of your, tell me some of the games that stick out to you. And they might not be positive necessarily, but but over your time doing Argyle, what, what have been the highlights? 
the absolute low light I'll start with because it's one that people always associate with me. If I just go, oh yeah, yeah. stuff of nightmares, the pug washing, the five one different fleetwood, and I was commentating on my own, which is never oh. ever easy. I would do almost anything to avoid commentating on me. So this was during the pandemic. Um, and David Norris is, was going to be my summariser. He was waiting on the outcome of a COVID test. Until he got the all clear, he wasn't allowed to, to be outside his bubble. So he'd driven to the ground in his car and he's waiting for the text manager to come through. But it just never came through in time. And so, you know, I think it came through in the end about sort of quarter past four, by which time he'd, he'd, he'd just, you know, quite rightly gone, I'm sorry, mate, but I'm, I'm driving back home to Bolton, where it is he lives, um, you know, that, that, mm. that, that he'd done all he could. And that was it. So I'm, I'm there on my own. There's no fans in the ground, obviously. This is the pandemic. There's just a few coaching staff, a few people supporting Fleetwood. Uh, and of course, the Tannoy, which every time mm. Fleetwood United, Fleetwood Town score, <laughs> they will play the Captain Pugwash theme tune at you. The first time, it's annoying. The second time, it's maddening. The third time, it's infuriating. The fourth time, you absolutely want to get out of your coverage position, go to stick one on somebody. And <laughs> and I'm doing my best to commentate. I mean, I, mean, I think we were, we were something like, uh, you know, we were trying to outplay Fleetwood Town's press, which didn't work out. And I think we were a goal down after eight minutes, two minutes, two, two goals down after 13. It was just, you were just able to make five subs for the first time, I think, that game. And, mm. and Ryan Lowe pulled off a couple of players before half time, even. I think it was like 28, 30 minutes in. Yeah. Yeah. Two and I'm sitting there struggling with it. There's no atmosphere to work off. There's no crowd noise to sort of fill in the gaps. It's all quite eerie, all quite ghostly. And it's just not going well. It's really not going well. And I'm thinking, blimey, when I get off air with this, I'm going to get absolutely slaughtered on social media for, today, for the work I've done today. People will just be on my back no end. And round about, and I think by the fourth goal went in in the second half, um, I'm actually, I know what's coming with the Captain Pugwash and I'm working with it. I've got a, and here it comes. And I sort of time my description of the goal and the up summer where we were with the game just to kind of dovetail nicely with the back of Captain Pugwash. And somewhere in that second half, I did something I'd never done before. And I think in, in films, they call it breaking the fourth wall or TV where, where you know, the, the, the characters will suddenly stop acting and they just look at the screen and they'll speak to you directly as the viewer. And I just basically paused and I just sort of said to the, to the, to the listener, I said, can I go home now, please? <laughs> and I just think there was something about that that made people understand that I was feeling the way they were feeling. I, I was yeah. as unhappy about this as they were. I was just a bloke trying to do his best in difficult circumstances. And oddly enough, um, you know, I came out of that and, and I was really quite surprised at the reaction it got. I think there was just something about it that made people go, yeah, you know what? Uh, we've all suffered today. And, and that, that, that's all. I think I was I was accused of getting needlessly excited when I got, got the goal back. I can't remember if it was at 4-0 or 5-0. We got, we got the one. <laughs> But believe me, I I just gave it everything I had because that was I was just so relieved to have that to have something positive to to report. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think so no that... no doubt, um, pugwash. Whenever you're having, if if ever that happens again, or you hear it, just not at a football ground, not at Fleetwood Town's ground, just anywhere, it triggers something in all Argyle fans, doesn't it? It, that? Haunts, as a, it haunts as a twitch. Charlie. It was, there'll be yeah. there'll be times. It, it, it follows me around the world. I, I will. There's times my my brain just pauses, and that damn theme tune just pops mm. into my head. 
And yeah, I think I, I think it's it's with me for the rest of my life. And then the following season, we were three one up with ninety seconds yeah. to go, and we conceded two goals and drew three all. And and freezing, like, freezing oh, cold no, day. Not again. Yeah, I was there. Um, so that's a low light. Yeah. Um, let's let's get let's move on from that. Other ones got to be some better uh, ones. Too. Winning three one away, MK Dons again. I think it was the season our goal went down from League One, and like a couple of my sort of desert island games, I almost didn't go. Um, I had very strong views on MK Dons at the time, still kind of mm-hmm. do, that you shouldn't be able to create a football team for your city by stealing somebody else's. Um, and I sort of said, I will never go there as a fan. I'll never pay money to go to that ground and watch that team. And I felt, and uh, Alan at Radio Devon asked me to do the game. And I felt a bit odd about, all right, well, I've kind of said this to myself and okay. And at the time, uh, the club was in administration and the staff weren't getting paid. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll donate my match fee to the to the fund for paying the staff and that's how i squared it with my conscience if you like um you know no no one's perfect in this world we've we've all got our own flaws our own things that we we have and we don't have but that that was my little way of how i sort of thought all right it's all right to go and do this and argyle was struggling um mk dons had the best home record in that in the division at that point and we won three one and all three goals we scored chris clark on his more bazira and the one i really remember is carrie arneson yeah, that he that just good, yeah. square pass to him 30 40 yards out in midfield i thought there's nothing on here and he just lumped it and um steve at greens or screens bless him has, has sent me the commentary clip of it and <laughs> I, I just go and, and arneson i just went up about three octaves is all i could do in that split second um it's like all, all you could convey is just the, the sheer bafflement for what just what just occurred and then, you know, I managed to catch up and just describe it. I, just, I, th- I said something, it was my Alan Partridge moment. I said, I said something like, he just leathered it, <laughs> which I've never said before or since, but that was, that was the moment. So that's one. And as a fan, my best ever game was actually, and again, it was great to go to, back to West Brom this season for the first time since then for a game, um, was Easter Monday, around about 1993. The Shilton's first season in what is now league one so yeah we finished sort of mid-table we we're starting to put something together but the easter saturday we'd lost three nil at home to exeter and even from staffordshire i nearly didn't bother going really? west brom had a really good side they ended up getting promoted that season i think they finished second and i just thought well we just lost three at home to exeter what we're going to do at west brom and we turned up and steve castle scored a hat trick we won five two we did a congo around the away end and it's just one of those games where, where you know, what you are expecting and what you get are completely different. And that, for me, is, is, is the magic of Plymouth Argyle. That, in some ways, you know, when you support a team that doesn't do that well, doesn't do that well often away from home, because that changed very much for the better under Ryan Lowe and Stephen Schumacher. Um, and suddenly, occasionally, you'll get one of those. And I actually went between Wembley in 1996, and I'm fairly sure... The next time I saw Plymouth Argyle win, because I went to, I think I went to a couple of home games in that period, but we didn't win them. And there was, we went a whole year without winning outside Devon at one point. So I was going away games at Leighton Orient and Barnet. And I think it was the South End 2001, possibly Steve Adams scored. But that was the first time in five years I'd seen Plymouth Argyle win. And it's almost, it's, it's almost, I think, a much stronger drug, if you like, than supporting a team that wins all the time. Mm. Because when you do, you know, when you and particularly after kind of having it so bad for so long, it's yeah, that that is um 
really something quite special. Unbelievable knowledge, by the way, Drew. November 2001, Southend nil, Argyle won, Steve Adams. It was Steve Adams. Yeah. I know Adam Barrett played in that game. I think it's the early Paul Storick period. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it would be, yeah. Incredible. Um, talk, talk to me. Um, talk to me about Port Vale. And you probably got a load of other games, but I, I yeah, want to so get we could your... be here all day. And yes, exactly. exactly. I want to get your feelings of that because it was, you know, that was one of the real good debts, and to be yes. working on that and commentating on that, and with the trophy lift. And I mean, it was such, what? a and it was it had been it had been such a season as well. Actually, Shrewsbury away, which is the game I did before that. Oh yes. And often the the one you, what you said sometimes the games you enjoy the most aren't necessarily the ones that where you do the best job. Um, and actually, in that category, I would say the one I enjoyed most and did the best was away at Salford City in the, in the season Argyle went up when the pandemic hit, and there was that last minute Ryan Hardy shot. Um, and for some reason, I've just had I've always had this way, the way I seem to be able to belt out Ryan Hardy's surname. <laughs> um, and I think someone shared the video on social media. Yeah. And that was one. Um, but the one, the game at Shrewsbury, last mm. minute, possibly injury time, Callum yeah, Wright yeah. diving header. I did not have a clue. The cross came over from Gillespie, over from the, the, the right wing, I think. We'd had a set piece. And I had no idea who'd scored it. And I just bellowed, diving header! <laughs> and then I'm frantically looking around, looking around, looking around waiting for whoever it is to get up and it's Callum Wright. And, you know, again, it's one of these ones you just keep it going and keep it going and keep it going until you're sure as you can be, it is who it is. And then you, then you go with yeah. Callum Wright. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we get to Port Vale and as I said, touched on very early on, um, I've been in a similar position away at Grimsby a few years previously under Derek Adams, where if our girl had won that game, we would have won mm -hmm. the league. Mm -hmm. And, Shame on me, I can't actually remember now the actual stat, but Argyle have not won very many league titles in our history. Everybody will know that. It's either six or seven. It was either six or seven before this year. You tell me, Charlie. But Can't. But you know, not many. So the idea that the little boy that grew up in Staffordshire saw us got stuffed 5-1 at Paul Vale, had the Panini sticker, went to the home, home game against Everton, would one day end up commentating on his own team, winning the league, away at Port Vale, where I'd never seen us win. That time we won 5-1 there, uh, a 3-0 scored and so on. I was up the road watching the Rugby League Grand Final. Um, <laughs> someone offered me tickets to it. I thought, well, we, we never win at Port Vale. I'm not going to bother going. I'll accept these tickets to the Rugby League. So I didn't even see that. So I'd never seen us even win at Port Vale. So, yeah, on on the day. And then we went a goal down. I'm thinking, oh, oh no, not again. Not again. I can't, I can't take this. I really can't take this. Um... And then obviously from that moment, it got better and better and better. And I was never quite secure in it. There wasn't a moment. I mean, you know, that Sparksy, the famous game against QPR where David Frio scores. But that's it. Argyle are up. I never had that certainty about it, even when Finn has scored. And by the way, I briefly thought it was Ryan Hardy and had to correct myself. And that will go with me. <laughs> Nobody else cares. Nobody else cares. No. <laughs> but, you know, the little things you wish you'd done better along the way but you know I've, people have said to me i did a decent job on the day and almost you, there were times where you just pour your soul into it that you've got to retain control of it and and describe what's happening but equally one of the reasons i'm there doing that job and not someone who's better at commentating than i am is 
I have this connection with the club. I'm I'm feeling the things that you're feeling at the same time, I'm sure, Charlie, and a lot of other people in that press box. And it's certainly everybody in their way end. And the vast majority of people listening on Radio Devon are feeling that this is yeah. one of the best things that could ever possibly have happened. You know, and I loved you know, Joe Edwards, the way he slid at a far post and just stood up with his arms spread wide and hailed the Hamill Road end. Um, Adam Randall, so great for Adam, Adam Randall. And, you know, again, he's just finally scored a goal at home park um, just last week, finally. But, yeah, for really a, a young Plymouthian boy who, you know, 13 years previously, I asked him, he'd been playing football in the park. Um, yeah, what a day to be part of. And um, I hope you won't mind saying this, but I had the best H eight word long conversation I've ever had with anybody because in the build up <laughs> the game Dan Scar was interviewed and you know there's been a lot of this stuff about the, the, the national media making a lot of fuss over Ipswich or Sheffield Wednesday and he said something along those lines and uh, you know that we've flown under the radar a bit and it would be great if Plymouth Argyle could just go to Port Vale win the title and basically shove it up them. <laughs> And, um, you know, so uh, obviously Argyle win and I'm waiting with Chris Arrington for um, possibly yourself or Robert to bring Stephen Schickenbacker over for an interview. Uh, and Dan Scar ambles past. So I just went up to him, shook his hand. I looked up at him because, you know, I'm five foot eight, mm-hmm. six foot, whatever he is, sort of face to chest conversation. I just looked at him and went, shove it up him. And he went, shove it up him. And we shook hands <laughs> and that was it. And that is probably my finest ever Argyle moment, I would say. The, the one I enjoyed more than any other. And, you know, then, then you get your professional head on and you yeah, discuss with Stephen Schumacher how it went and, and all this, that and the other and what it means. But I think days like that, it, it's an easy job to do, isn't it? it yeah. it's, it's the question of you you get people to talk and tell them tell tell you how they're feeling. Um, mm. What a day. What a day. And and just to finish that off, uh, so I actually had a little scroll through your your X or Twitter um, to to kind of have a bit of ammo. But I'm imagining you probably felt similar to how I did and how many others did, especially people who knew Sparksy. Chris Errington would have been another one. Lots of people in the away end just wishing that he was there for that game. Yes, uh, I mean I, I I get incredibly emotional when I think about Sparksy sometimes um and he was you know he was with me that day and and I had I'd said to myself if there's a chance I'll try and say it the way he said it and I think I know and I just at the final whistle I just went that's it I'll go the champions and I almost burst into tears straight away mm. yeah, <laughs> because yeah, suddenly, yeah. suddenly suddenly there was there was there was a, a bit of Sparksy with me um yeah blimey <laughs> No, I know um, the feeling. Yeah, it, it, and actually, it, it, since since he passed away, we we still have not won a three pm Saturday kickoff away from home. Uh, so if you're if you're listening, to Gordon, um, if you can pull any strings for us, uh, we're away at Leicester. So uh, you know, do what you can. Curse. Yeah, it's time for Green in sixty seconds. Drew, just to finish on, um, I thought. Uh, after you prompted me, we do a version of Green in sixty seconds. Um, <clears throat> but uh, th- the thing is, I think you're probably going to smash this. Um, so normally, Green in sixty seconds is teammates of the guest, um, and I read out the names of the clubs, and you've got to guess who it is. I'm going to go for people I think you have commentated with um, that have also obviously played for Argyle. 
So you could just chuck names at me, but try and do it properly, Drew, okay? Okay. Are you ready? As I ever be. Good. Here we go. Bolton, Dundee, Sheffield Wednesday, Oldham, Swindon. Hasn't he? <laughs> well done. Leighton Orient, Birmingham, Gillingham, Peterborough, Steve Mitchell, and Wolverhampton. Steve Castle. Well Stamford, Boston, Bolton, Ipswich, Portsmouth, Leeds, Peterborough, Yeovil, Blackpool, Leatherhead, Salford, Shaw Lane, Boston, Chuck Norris. Grays Athletic, Middlesbrough, Luton, Kingstonian, Slough, Aylesbury, Boreham Wood, and Dwight Marshall. Flying at this. Man United, Royal Antwerp, Shrewsbury, Blackpool, Colchester, Norwich, Barnsley, oh. Crewe. David Fox. Leak. Yeovil, Sherborne, or Shelbourne, Torquay, Grimsby, Lincoln, Mansfield, Mickles, Macclesfield, Chesterfield, Chester, Yeovil, Stockport, Truro. Martin Gritton. Yes, well done. Uh, Birmingham, Leicester, Sheffield Wednesday, Doncaster, Oldham, Northampton, Southend, Lincoln, Dagenham and Redbridge. I'm going to say Peter, Peter Gilbert, probably not. Oh, it, it is. Wow. It, it is. That's incredible. I mean, you've got 100%. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven is a big score. Have you commentated with all of those people? I have. Oh, uh, I'm patting myself on Yes, that. I did an away game at Shrewsbury with, uh, with Peter Gilbert the one time. Because he, um, I don't know if he still is, but he works as a development coach at West Brom, so he could only do midweek games. Um, yeah, he's at Villa now, I think. But yes, he um, he he was at West Brom for a long, long time. Oh, well, Drew, well done. I mean, that's a good score, seven. It doesn't quite put you top, but I, do, I didn't actually have 11 to... Um, <laughs> I'm going to say that, that, that's Nancy pretty... Um, yeah. Are there any... Uh, Steve Davey could have had. This is my Steve first Davey, ever home, game, okay. home game with Steve Davey. Chris um, Hargreaves was another one that was a maybe, but I wasn't sure. No, never worked, never worked, Chris. And then Gary Nelson was the other one that I thought maybe, but I don't know. Have you done any yeah, in yeah. London? And again, that, that has been one of the absolute anyway. privileges of, of doing what I do, that, you know, the level of, of footballing talent I have, <laughs> I was never going to play with Plymouth Argyle. Um, you know, some, some, some may say the level of broadcasting talent I have, I should never be doing this, but I've got to work alongside some of my heroes and just form little partnerships. And, and, uh, and that has been one of the best thing, you know, yeah. One of the, the best things that has ever happened to me, um, mm. you know, to be working alongside people like Hasney and David Norris and yeah, it's, uh, life's kind to you sometimes, isn't it? It is. Drew, brilliant stuff. Thank you so much for um, staying on after work and chatting to us on the Argyle podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Charlie. It's, uh, yeah, it's rattled by. Argyle has scored! Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. This is the Argyle podcast. Well, thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, there are plenty of other episodes for you to go back to, listen to, and enjoy. If you're new to the podcast, they're all on our website, pafc.co.uk. Just a quick reminder, and something that I say every single episode, if you've got a suggestion for a guest, someone that we haven't spoken to yet, someone that you would like to hear from, just let us know. Drop us an email, media at pafc.co.uk. The Argyle Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.